0: today's episode we will be exploring professor samuel Stuck's paper about a gel that contains two specific proteins that can help with spinal cord degeneration but these two specific signals are even more important because they've been given the ability to dance faster and that means they are better listen in to learn more he may not be a neuroscientist but a chemist but in my mind Anyone who has an interest in neuroscience and does neuroscience based research is a neuroscientist. So, hi, Samuel. Could you tell me a little bit more about yourself?
1: And thanks for having me in this podcast. I am a professor of material science and engineering, uh, and professor of chemistry, medicine, and biomedical engineering at Northwestern University. I also direct the Simpson Query Institute for BioNanotechnology at Northwestern University. Uh, Northwestern University has two campuses, one in Chicago and one in Evanston. So these are two adjacent cities. I have laboratories in both places.
0: And how many researchers do you have in both combined together?
1: I, I you know, have nearly uh, 45, 50 investigators that are part of my team Uh, usually is about 50 a large team it's a large team and some of them are stationed in my Chicago laboratory Mm -hmm. others are stationed in the Evanston laboratory Evanston is basically like like a suburb city of Mm -hmm. Chicago so it's they're just 13 miles. they're very close to each other yes and uh so we are a we are not a neuroscience lab, we are a material science and chemistry lab, mm-hmm. but we work in neuroscience obviously and uh, and also other areas of bio nanotechnology and very broadly we are interested in regenerative medicine.
0: Is are you interested in particular areas of the body for regenerative medicine or are you just interested in regenerative medicine in particular because I know that depending on the area of the body you want to help repair, you need specific cellular matrix components and so on. So, I would think that you'd have to focus on particular areas of the body.
1: Yes, that is correct. Uh, uh, but you know, we are we are focused on I would say two main areas in our work. One is the musculoskeletal area, so where we are interested in the regeneration of bone, and cartilage, muscle, and other connective tissues. And then we are interested in the neural space, you know, the brain, the spinal cord, peripheral nervous system. So those are the two main areas that we are interested in, but we utilize for our research, we utilize a broad platform that we developed going back to a seminal paper in 2001, published in Science magazine, a paper at that year. So it's now uh, basically uh, about 20 years, and the platform is a supramolecular biomaterials platform, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this means that we were interested in creating matrices, artificial extracellular matrices, specifically. That could bear signals and um, for cells that were relevant to regenerative processes. And so, what does the supramolecular part mean? What does it mean? It means we are interested in understanding how molecules interact with each other, and and how structures can be created through those interactions. This is how nature, you know, biological systems create their matrices. And so we were interested in creating through interactions between relatively small molecules, not polymers per se, but relatively small molecules interacting with each other, forming structures with thousands or millions of molecules that would yield structures that mimic natural art, natural extracellular matrices. Mm. Organisms. And so the most uh, logical way to initiate this type of research was to think about filaments, because most of the matrices that surround cells and mammalian organisms are highly filamentous. And so we developed a strategy to create molecules we refer to as peptide amphiphiles. The molecules are made up of peptides. And the peptides are then covalently bonded to a hydrophobic component. In our case, it's a lipid-like tail. So they're lipid peptides. And we uh, develop sequences of amino acids that, in those molecules, that when brought into contact with water, spontaneously polymerize to these very high-aspect ratio filaments So we refer to those filaments as supramolecular filaments because they typically contain, say, 100,000 molecules. And so supramolecular meaning beyond the molecule, right? And, And the idea was that the molecules inside those filaments would display with the proper geometry signals for receptors that would initiate signaling pathways for regeneration. So, so that is the broad platform that we use both in the musculoskeletal area as well as
0: in the neural. And you just modify the type of signal in that sense, like the, the correct, the molecules that are present in that sense to affect whatever pathway you want to affect. Exactly. And so we think
1: about important signaling pathways that we want to activate, and we also think about proteins as well. So one of the possibilities in the platform is to place peptides on these molecules that have specific affinities for certain proteins, particularly growth factors. As you can imagine, growth factors are going to be of great interest in regeneration. So we can install in these molecules peptide sequences that have affinity for those growth factors in this way, either help position them in the right way to activate receptors or to protect them from enzymatic degradation. But the other approach that we use, and that was the approach that was used in this recent science paper published in November on spinal cord injury, uh, we use short peptides that can themselves activate receptors uh, rather than relying on proteins. And the reason why this is important is because proteins normally have very short half-life. So creating therapies that are based on proteins is somewhat challenging and Mm -hmm. sometimes impossible, either because of the cost or because of the instability uh, of proteins in the living environment, therefore making the therapy very difficult to implement. Instead, we use these uh, supramolecular filaments and... in the supramolecular filament, molecules are interacting with each other very often through hydrogen bonding and also electrostatic interactions and other types of uh, short-range interactions among molecules. And this gives the filament a much longer half-life than a protein would have. And so if part of those molecules in the filament have a peptide sequence that that functions effectively as the growth factor, even though it is not a growth factor, then the half-life is greatly extended and then the therapy becomes more possible. Uh, it becomes, uh, you know, some reasonable target. And, and that is, I would say, probably our favorite approach, to be able to activate the receptors directly
0: with the molecules that make
1: up the film.
0: Why did you choose to do research on the particular two proteins that you chose for this paper.
1: Yes. So in this paper, we utilize basically two signals. And it was the first time that we actually utilize two distinct signals in the same filament. I mean, normally when we had in vivo models, we had utilized one signal. And and it it is not a trivial task to integrate two different molecules with two different signals in the same filament. Because, you know, that is sometimes that goes against thermodynamics and Mm. you can't really drive both molecules to interact together and and, and (laughs) in part of the same filament. But, of course, it's a very attractive idea that this filament, which is like a one dimensional scaffold that comes in contact with the cell, that it has not just one signal, but one type of signal, but it has at least two. I mean, that might be more effective. Oftentimes in biology, you you do have interactions among bound proteins. So that was a major change relative to our earlier papers for years where we typically have focused on one signal. In this case, we chose one signal that we knew from a paper that we published in 2008 that was particularly useful in doing Two things biologically. One, first, there was a paper in 2004 in Science that showed that this particular signal on our uh, filaments, on our uh, peptide amphiphile supramolecular filaments, had the ability to turn neural stem cells into neurons. I mean, to control the fate of the neural progenitor cells or neural stem cells In that case, it was, uh, yeah, in in that case, they, they were neural stem cells from a mouse. And so we saw a selective and rapid differentiation of those neural stem cells into neurons. And the mechanistic details were not really very clear, but it was a real breakthrough because normally when neural stem cells are cultured, you know, you get You get uh, different types of cells. You may get Mm -hmm. astrocytes, you know, glial cells or oligodendrocytes. In this case, we effectively got a a pure population of neurons. And so that was pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. And we were not using any proteins, any growth factors. We were just using the filaments. So, So that was an interesting thing in the neural context. And then in 2008, we used the same filaments in a model of spinal cord injury. And we discovered that those same filaments are very useful at regenerating axons of an injured cord. In those days, we were looking at rather mild injuries of the spinal cord. We still saw some improvement in functional recovery after a mild injury to the cord in a Mm murine model. We, We actually did both mouse and rat model. And so that was in 2008. And so that was the background to this new paper. And so we continued to investigate these systems, understanding better the chemistry, the synthetic chemistry that is needed to to create the molecules, the Mm -hmm. material science to understand the self-assembly of the molecules into filaments, whether the filaments bundle. Are they cylindrical are they are they uh, like I mean studying a lot of details and so and, and also understanding how that signal works. And so we learned a lot about that in, you know in the last uh, uh, I would say five to eight years or so and that is the backdrop to the launching of this new study that resulted in the science paper. We used that signal again, but now in in very interesting new molecules that we created. And then the second signal that we chose is a mimic of fibroblast growth factor 2. And FGF2, as it's known in biology, FGF2 is a very important uh, mitotic signal that induces the proliferation of cells. And so we thought that having access to um, a proliferative signal should be important in the repair of the cord, and, and that turned out to be extremely important. And so we were very lucky to have had that insight. We combined the two signals. We the FGF2 signal was in fact a a peptide that had been reported earlier in the literature. We actually published on that uh, signal. In another context, not in the context of spinal cord injury, a few years back, we reported on it that this Mm -hmm. this paper is cited in the science paper. And here, we used it then combined with the axon extending or axon regenerating signal that Mm -hmm. we had used before. So this signal, you know, is a sequence of about 12 amino acids or so. And it activates the FGF2 receptor. And so those were the two signals and off we went. But of course, the most important breakthrough of this paper had to do with something other than the signals. I mean, even though the using the two signals was very important, very powerful, but, but there was a real breakthrough in this paper, which had to do with the motion of the molecules that make up the film. We got interested in this idea of motion and dynamic of the molecular components of the filaments Uh, going back to about 2016, 2015, we were interested in this problem. And as it turned out, we were aware of the fact that the filaments, which are formed by, as I said before, you know, maybe hundreds of, of thousands of molecules bonded together they are not static they're actually moving they, they have local motions you know for example in the areas where they have the signals which is very important because as you know cells are very dynamic cells are always moving and particularly the receptors in cell membranes are moving very rapidly, translating dynamic environments. And, and people don't always think about, you know scientists haven't always thought about this, that effectively when we're trying to signal receptors, we have moving targets. Mm. So that means that the signals that are going to be activating those um, receptors, they need to also be experiencing motions to mm-hmm. match the motions of the receptors. And so if both are moving, and, and have the freedom to explore different positions in space, they have a much higher probability of activating the receptor. And this turned out to be the great breakthrough in this paper, where A, we figured out how to tune that motion. And so the way that, hence the, 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 uh, the um, the, the uh, metaphor that was used in the, in the press releases of, of this paper, we talked about the dancing molecules, mm-hmm. and dancing is the metaphor to describe the movement of the molecules. So so the way you should imagine this is mm-hmm. that the molecules in the filament, maybe in clusters, they can translate within the filament and change position from one to position one to position two, three and four, mm-hmm. or they could even attempt to escape from the filament by jumping out and then jumping back into the filament. Uh. And and so this constant motion, and, and we were able to measure those motions experimentally and reported them on the paper, those measurements. But most importantly, we figured out how to change the chemical structure of those molecules. We call the monomers of the filament by changing their chemical structure. So that was a very exciting thing to Mm -hmm. realize that we could tune the intensity of the motion, changing the chemical structure of the monomers. And then we discovered that when the the motion was very intense through our control on chemical structure, Mm -hmm. it's when we got not only the most signaling biologically, but excitingly, in the model of the spinal cord injury, we saw that the filaments uh, that had the most mobile, the best dancers, let's say, yeah. had the most ability, had the highest ability, that the, uh, the uh, you know, uh, to promote regenerative processes in the spinal cord and therefore bring about functional recovery in the injured animal.
0: Why do you think that's the case that increased motion leads to this increase? Well, in
1: the- our hypothesis here is that when you have motion, I mean the, the, the signal that we put in the molecules of the filament, mm-hmm. they have affinity for specific mm-hmm. receptors. Each one of those two signals has it, will have affinity for their respective uh, receptors. And so if, if, if the receptors are moving constantly, and, and the molecules are moving, right? Then they can probe different, you know, more rapidly different areas of the receptor. You know, the, the molecules are smaller than the receptor and the molecules have to touch the receptor in a specific way, in a specific spot in order to activate it. So if you are moving, oh, yeah. you have a higher probability mm. hitting the right spot. If you're static, and the receptor is moving, then the receptor moves around, much lower probability of activation by the molecule.
0: But there must be a certain limit, like you don't want to have too much movement, right? That absolutely.
1: Yeah. It, that is absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. So that means that, I mean, paper, we explored a library of monomers, of molecules, which have different motions, and they came three groups. And so we saw that the ones that had the slowest motion, the least motion, were not very effective biologically and to restore functionality and to repair the the injured spinal cord. The ones that had the most motion were the most effective. And then an intermediate group was in between. We saw the spectrum. But you are absolutely correct that if you if you take the motion too far then you are not even going to have filaments anymore the morphology of the filament we know from earlier research is very important in the activation of signals on cells and not surprisingly because the cell is really surrounded by filaments naturally mm-hmm. filaments are the the types of, of matrices that surround cells in 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 mammalian biology.
0: And what imaging techniques do you use to look into this?
1: Well, we used a variety of techniques. So, to visualize the filaments and to look at the morphology and to, to understand what the shapes were and the, how the size and the aspect ratio, we relied on electron microscopy. So, there we use typically transmission electron microscopy. Oftentimes of the type known as cryo-electromicroscopy, which means that you, you are able to visualize, for example, what the filaments look like in aqueous solution, you know, dissolved in water, which is how we administer the therapy. We we dissolve the filaments in water and we inject them into the cord. And then by design, when the filaments touch the tissues of the spinal cord, they form a network they collapse together and this has to do with the presence of electrolytes in the physiological fluids and so that causes the filaments to build a network that around network, the spinal cord exactly inside the cord they <laughs> form this network and that network takes the physical form of a gel okay. so you start with a liquid that you can inject mm-hmm. and then you know it Seconds later, after the injection, you know, in seconds, th- this liquid has turned into a localized at the site of injury. Would this be
0: applicable for humans and also?
1: Yes, this is our hope. We, in. Uh, for, I, I will tell you about that in a minute, but I would just finish up. You asked me about the imaging techniques. The other technique that we utilized a lot is the so-called optical microscopy. It's a very popular technique these days to um, where you can visualize things at different planes in confocal in microscopy was used to look at the anatomy of the cord after the injury and after the administration of the therapy. Now, going back to your question about applicability in humans, I think this therapy is, is very much therapy that can be realistically translated to humans mm-hmm. because First reason is that it doesn't involve the use of living cells, which are much more complicated therapies to translate. When you're trying to use cells to create therapies, or when you're trying to use genes for therapies, or when you're trying to use proteins for therapies, those have many challenges. Here, the, this is a therapy, for example, based on two molecules that can be chemically produced and scaled up in very pure, reproducibly. And therefore, from a manufacturing point of view, it would be easy to translate. The other is that the molecules are biomolecular and they are totally biodegradable. Mm -hmm. And so that means that let's say six weeks after you inject this therapy in the spinal cord, the therapy will be completely gone. And in fact, this was demonstrated clearly in the paper, in in the science paper. So eight weeks later, you won't really see any of the material left and it just degrades into nutrients. They degrade into amino acids and lipids. So it's completely safe. It's very biocompatible. And so, so those are the, the second reason why it could be very applicable to translate into humans. But the other one is that it is a, it's an injection into the cord. And of course, there are challenges in clinically injecting mm-hmm. something into the cord. But I have mm-hmm. the neurosurgeons and they tell me that this is something that they can definitely do. You know, because they often actually have to, you know, I'll give you an example. Neurosurgeons remove tumors from the spinal cord. For that, they have to surgically go in and remove tumors. Mm-hmm. And so, to them, the idea that you, especially with all the accurate instruments that are available right now to position injections. Mm -hmm. And with all the advances in imaging techniques like MRI, where you can see where the injury might be located, I think it will be definitely possible. And that's what neurosurgeons have been telling me that, and they are very excited about this because they think it's something that they could definitely do in surgery when they are treating a spinal cord injury patient. Spinal cord injury patients most commonly have some kind of surgery, right? Because You can imagine, you know, if you have a an injury that is strong enough and serious enough for paralyze you, that probably there you there will be broken bones on the spine, right? Because the spine being the protector of the spinal cord. And so they have to have surgery to remove broken bones, to stabilize the spine. So the surgery is done anyway, so our intervention in, with an injection in the cord is not an additional trauma to, the, but it could be integrated as part of the surgical intervention to stabilize the patient. So I think that it is extremely translatable.
0: What spinal cord model did you use? Is that applicable to humans? Like is that does that match what you see in humans?
1: Yes, absolutely. We we used, you know, our intent was to use a model that emulates the human injury. And so we did not do a transection, we didn't cut the cord, you know, because we didn't think that that was a good model for the injury. The human injury usually is a contusion, it's a very it's a compressive injury typically as a result of a strong force that might be involved in a car accident or a sports injury or gunshot wound or explosion, whatever it is. And so it's a very large load applied to the cord that, of course, will sever some axons, will damage some axons, maybe destroy the myelin around axons and rupture the blood vessels that are feeding the cord, the spinal cord, and and so we uh, what so we impacted. We designed to use a model that would emulate these characteristics, and so this is all under computer control. We actually, in fact, basically exposed the cord to a strong force delivered under in a computerized piece of equipment, and this is classified. It is classified as a severe injury. And so that's what we use because we think this simulates the human injury. The other part of the model that we used to simulate the human injury was to wait 24 hours after the injury before we administered the therapy, thinking that patients do not necessarily come to an operating room in a hospital to be helped as a result of their injury right away. You know, this, there could be a delay, you know, it's like you are in an operating room maybe you were in some skiing slopes or something, you're not going to be in the operating room in 30 minutes. So yeah. we're 24 hour to when, you know, inflammatory processes are ongoing and, and many things happening as the body's trying to deal with the, the injury. And then we administered the therapy this, this time may change later maybe that it will be better to wait 48 hours or 72 hours Mm -hmm. but that's a detail that we will explore uh, moving forward
0: are you going to build on top of this work and try to turn this into a therapy in
1: 2022 we are gathering more information on the model therapy and we're going to approach the fda in washington to explore the possibility of gaining permission for a clinical trial And of course, how long will this process take will depend on the reaction of the FDA. Mm -hmm. This is not really up to us, you know, it's up to them, but, you know, we're going to make a strong case for it, especially because patients have no other, and we're going to approach them about the use of our therapy to treat the acute injury, which means that it's to treat the injury that has just occurred in so that we can reverse paralysis, we can eradicate paralysis after spinal cord injury. We are also interested in developing the therapy for the chronic injury, which is the injury that occurred a long time ago, or some time ago. And and that is a, a more challenging delivery of the therapy. But we are already working on that already interested in, and it may be that the therapy for that Situation is not very different from the one that we have reported on, but there may be some extra uh, components in the therapy that address needs of the chronic injury in, as opposed to the acute injury. And we are already working on this, and we hope that eventually we will be able to have an impact with our approach for chronic spinal cord injury patients.
0: What do you do outside of
1: the research you do in the lab? outside well not very much because you know i'm a 24 7 scientist but i mean of course i have a lot of interests right mm-hmm. i mean i have i am very interested in art for example mm-hmm. and, in particular and, art well yeah. I, I i love you know paintings and i like opera uh, i mean i i like music and, what so, sort yeah, of music I, i'm like- very interested in all of that but but, but i i struggle you know to to find the time for my interest in art and you know music and so forth, because of course science is such a twenty-four-seven activity. It, it's something that's very, but 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 of course is is such a, an amazing privilege. I would say it's, it's a something that I don't take lightly. I realize that I'm lucky to be doing something that I absolutely love and I'm passionate about. It, but the, the, bra- the brand of science that I or the type of science that I, I am interested in is a science that can have societal impact. You mm. know, I always exactly.
0: yeah, that's that what science, science should do.
1: do. Yes, that's what scientists should really think about that. Mm-hmm. Solve our biggest problems, bring about a better life for everyone and to take care of our planet as well.
0: Yeah, at the same time.
1: So, so I, I, you know, that's the, the brand of science that I subscribe to. And, and of course, it is a difficult type of science, right? Because, you know, I could have published a paper on supramolecular motion of the molecules and the filaments that we've been talking about, these artificial matrices for spinal cord injury to treat spinal cord injury and other regenerative targets. I could have just published a paper on the basic synthetic chemistry and physical chemistry and material science of, of those filaments. But instead, I, I studied them and, and developed new science context of spinal cord injury. I mean, that's a much more difficult challenge. You know, as I told you at the beginning of, of our conversation, I am not a neuroscientist. You know, I am a chemist and a material scientist. And But I have been a student of neuroscience, I guess you should say, mm. for, for now more than two decades, because I've been very interested in how we repair the brain and the spinal cord. And So I guess that's, that's another thing I have to do other than do normal science is to also always be learning about the parts of science that I'm not an expert on. And this is, this is a challenge. And, uh, and, and particularly a challenge because oftentimes, you know, scientific communities tend to be sometimes a bit closed. They don't easily accept people from other parts of science. Mm-hmm. And and so you write a paper about spinal cord injury and, and you say, well, why is this chemist and material scientist?
0: Yeah, writing a paper about neuroscience. Or, or why
1: should it, we accept his results? He's not a neuroscientist. Exactly. Or. So this is a challenge. But I have taken that to be one of the issues that I face in my mm. scientific life, and I'm very proud of the fact that I've not been afraid to do that.
0: Books that you couldn't be reading at the moment because I see you've got a massive book collection. So there yeah, must be a
1: book. I, I'm not doing much reading because I am so busy right now mm. with research, but I, I really you know like to... You know, you know, for example, I love to read about Darwin, but because
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, that's he's one of my, you know, in a historical context, one of my heroes. But and I and I also like uh, science as art, is something that in my institute mm-hmm. we have been uh, promoting a lot and, and find that this is a very encouraging area for people to be interested and more friendly towards science. Uh, so, so uh, reading about people that have. Combine art and science is also interesting. Da Vinci is a very good example.
0: Ah, that is interesting. Is there any particular um like book or that you would recommend to people?
1: You know, I don't want to endorse a specific book. You know, I, I think people should always look for um, you know, the things that they're most curious about in and, and then um and then make their decisions, right? So I, I have to tell you, I, I need to find more time to re- rekindle my- passion. My fashion. Yes. Okay.
0: Um, what advice would you give to students who want to come into this area of research?
1: I think that uh, the, the people who want to do the type, the brand of research that we've talked about today need to have a commitment to interdisciplinary science. Mm-hmm. In other words, you need to have the commitment to learn about many parts of science uh, and do this from the very beginning as they begin their studies in the university. This is something that my university does very well. Northwestern University is well known for its interdisciplinary research brand. You know, we... Part of our branding is interdisciplinary science. And I'll give you an excellent example of that. You know, uh, Northwestern University was the inventor of the field of material science, which now is a part, is really a part of, of every major uh, department, every major university in the world has a of material science, you know, which studies obviously the, the physics and the chemistry and the engineering materials. The materials we use in all technologies, you know, from information technologies to medical technologies. And we were the ones who, in the late 50s, early 60s, started a department called Department of Material Science and Engineering. And this was a great interdisciplinary effort. And and there are other examples of fields at Northwestern that, that have focused on interdisciplinary research. So we do that very well. It's part of our culture. I would advise you know students that want to do this kind of research let's say they they are interested in in grand challenges you know in spinal cord cord injury brain repair you know uh, mm-hmm. this is I mean, this is an enormous challenge and so it's not enough to just know chemistry you also have to know physics and you have to know material you have to know biology and and you have to understand clinical medicine you know you need to understand mm-hmm clinical translation, you mm-hmm.
0: need to know a lot of things. But isn't it better to work with others who have expertise in the area rather than trying to learn all these areas yourself?
1: I, I think, okay, I I think this is an important question you raise, mm-hmm. but I I would say the following. The model where you are going to focus on one narrow field and then rely on others for collaborations, in my opinion, that doesn't work well. Mm-hmm. In my opinion... That is not an ideal situation. In my opinion, uh, collaborations are important and you should do them with those who are experts in other areas. But the most important is that you yourself have to have an interdisciplinary brain. It, it, you can collaborate with others who are true experts. You know, For example, these days I'm very interested in applying Artificial intelligence methodologies to to the things that we do i you know this is a, a brand new thing for me I've been trying to learn about AI methods and machine learning and all of that you know I, I, in my own time you know to try to understand exactly what that field can do but if I don't understand what that field can do for me then it, then a meaningful interaction with that field will never happen yeah. so you you have to have the interdisciplinary brain, the the the, the interest and in the patients to learn about many areas of science, you have to know one area very well. You have to be an expert on something, which in our case, you know, it's chemistry and material science. But mm-hmm. but you have to take the interest in understanding other parts of science. Be like the way scientists used to be centuries ago. They were like... like yeah, most,
0: like they were like...
1: You in mentioned Da Vinci. Should...
0: Like Da Vinci was an engineer. He was a
1: painter. Uh, he was absolutely. Mm. But then, as as science developed exponentially, particularly in the in the in the 20th century, we mm. became, you know, more specialized. And I think now we need to diversify again. And so I think that individuals have to be able to ha- to do that, and at the same time seek collaborative efforts with other scientists with other colleagues who are experts at other things Mm. so it's
0: a balance it's a balance of both it's been great talking to you and you've given a lot of good information and good advice as well so thank you thank you for inviting
1: me to do this talk with you i have enjoyed the conversation with you and and wish you a very happy holiday season and a happy new year
0: in summary Dancing molecules are good for us, and maybe dancing is too. I'll let you decide on whether you want to take it up. Professor Stupp's experiments involve taking two protein sequences that bind to fibroblast growth factor and laminin receptors, respectively. The reason these receptors were chosen is because both receptors have been shown to be extremely effective in regeneration, cell proliferation, blood vessel formation, and extracellular production and more. I could carry on going on about the pathways they activate, but I think you get the picture. This research was also made interesting by the fact that different protein sequences were used that were found to have increased motion. And because they had the increased motion that led to the increased regenerative effects that was seen in cells and mice. The molecules that danced more were more likely to fit into the receptors and therefore activate them and lead to repair. I have a feeling this research could have wide-ranging implications. But the other thing I liked was the fact that they tested it in animal models of spinal cord injury and now the only hurdle is to test it in humans and hopefully Will be an effective treatment strategy. Science is truly a great thing. And Samuel agrees with me. We love science, even though we both realize that you still need to do other things. He has books, arts, and more. I have writing books and spending time outside and with my family. If chemical research like that conducted by Stubbs, by Samuel, interests you, then make sure to keep your mind open because he recommended multidisciplinary research and keeping your mind in many different fields at once. So get your head down and get learning. Don't forget to check out the links which I'll put in the description. I would also be happy to talk to anyone about any questions you have in regards to science. And If you or someone you know wants to come on the podcast, then get in touch. Be sure to also share the podcast and comment if you liked it. I also welcome constructive feedback. Emphasis on the word constructive. I want to improve this podcast for you listeners. So if there's a way I can, just tell me. And I look forward to exploring another paper bringing to light the brilliance of the brain through new neuroscience research.